each one of you here tonight for night number five of Revival. Amen. Hasn't it been a great week? It has just been wonderful. Let's go ahead and stand again as we begin tonight. Turn to page 525. The song the ladies were just playing, I love it little as much when God is in it. We'll sing this to begin tonight. All three verses, page 525. In the harvest field, in the harvest field now ripen, there's a work for all to do. Hark the voice of God is calling to the harvest, calling you. Little as much when God is in it, labor not for wealth or fame. There's a crowd and you can win it if you'll go in Jesus' name. Does the place you're called to labor seem so small and little known? It is great if God is in it, and he'll not forget his own. Little as much when God is in it, labor not for wealth or fame. There's a crown, and you can win it if you'll go in Jesus' name. When the conflict here is ended, and our race on earth is run, he will say, if we are faithful, welcome home, my child, well done. Little as much when God is in it, labor not for wealth or fame. There's a crown, and you can win it if you'll go in Jesus' name. Amen. Great start. Sure, glad you're here uh, tonight. I like how he said it was the sixth night, and it's been a great week. Amen. And like two people said, Amen. Amen. So, I know uh, the flesh is uh, warring, but listen, you made it to the house of the Lord, and that's where we need to be uh, tonight. And so, let's pray and ask God to meet with us and to bless the service uh, tonight. I'm going to ask Brother John Ellis if you would pray for us tonight. Yes. Amen. Won't you be seated uh, tonight? At this time, we're going to have a special uh, by the mixed ensemble. Yeah. 
to our Savior and our great God. I don't know about you, but all I could think about was Revelation chapter 5. And uh, the, the whole heaven and earth looking for the, the one that was worthy. 
And the Lamb of God, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, stepping forth, Son. What a blessing. He is worthy tonight, isn't He? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank You tonight. Lord, thank You for godly music tonight. And thank You, Lord, for that which just honors You and glorifies You, reminds us, Lord, that You are to be our audience because, Lord, you are worthy of our audience. And so, God, thank you for that tonight. And, Lord, help us, Lord, uh, just to continue tonight to praise you in our song and to magnify you. And, Lord, I, I pray for Brother Herring tonight that, Lord God, you would just use him as your vessel tonight to just boldly and clearly just preach the Word of God as he's done all week. And, oh, God, that your presence would certainly be here among us and working among us. And, Lord, bless the offering uh, tonight. Just so grateful we can have a meeting like this. And so, Lord, help us to be a blessing, as certainly the man of God has already been a blessing to us. So, Lord, bless the offering. Bless the remainder of the service. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. stand together one last time. Turn to page 606 if you would. Page number 606. If we're going to have revival, we need to be led by the Spirit of God. Amen. In our lives, all the way my Savior leads me. Page number 606. Sing it like you mean it tonight out on that first verse. All the way my Savior leads me. What have I to ask beside? Can I doubt His tender mercy? Who through life has been my guide Heavenly peace, divinest comfort Here by faith in Him to dwell For I know whatever befalls me Jesus doeth all things well For I know whatever befall me Jesus doeth all things well all the way my Savior leads me, cheers each winding path I tread, gives me grace for every trial, feeds me with the living bread. Though my weary steps may falter, and my soul a thirst may be, gushing from the rock before me, joy I see gushing from the rock before me lo a spring of joy I see all the way my Savior leads me oh the fullness of his love perfect rest to me is promised 
promised in my Father's house above. When my spirit clothed immortal wings its flight to realms of day, this my song through endless ages, Jesus led me all the way. This my song through endless ages, Jesus led me all the way. Amen. You may be seated. Just before the message tonight, we have a special for Mrs. Watson. Aren't you glad God loves us tonight? Mercy. What a great night. 
Uh, Brother Herring, it's been a blessing, so come and preach to us, brother. It's been a great Alrighty, I'm glad to be here tonight. I blew in from down at the other side of the property, amen? And uh, wow, we just had a great day, beautiful day. Went to, went to the World War I Museum, fantastic. I went to it a number of years ago, and uh, Susie and I were uh, at the GIBF meeting in St. Joe, and so when we came in, uh, we knew two things, that, that there was um, the World War I Museum and Andes. And uh, anyhow, so that didn't get the response we should have gotten, but hopefully, hopefully after the message tonight it will. Uh, you got to get tuned in a little bit. But, but anyhow, um, I thought it was just the, the, you know, I thought it was Kansas World War I Museum, but it is, it's the national. It's fantastic. And if you haven't been there, you need to. It's, it is absolutely tremendous. Great place to go. And so we had a great day and en enjoyed that. And uh, then got a little barbecue. Can you imagine that barbecue in Kansas City? It's amazing. There are like 12 restaurants in the airport that are barbecue. It's amazing. My word. I mean, and, and it's all good. I mean, it's, it's amazing. The best part is you can't get any bad barbecue here. It's all good barbecue. So it's fantastic. So we, we had a great time. Good to have the posse with us uh, tonight right down here. The posse, yes, the marshal. Every marshal, Bill Marshall, every marshal has a posse. Come on, guys. <laughs> Greet them, all right, or you'll get gunned down. Good night. They came to protect me tonight. And, uh, but we, we love Brother Marshall and Miss Pam. They are, they are two of the best. They really are. Amen. And I'm so grateful for their testimony. I, I, uh, <laughs> I preach a message on, uh, on looking for lost souls, and I have... In, in my Bible, when I preach that message, I have a track of Bill Marshall and what he used to be and where God found him and what God has done with his life. One of my favorite pictures in all the world is a picture of Bill Marshall in the car and a beautiful young girl, Pam, is sitting next to him. And I don't know what he was on, but he was on something in that picture, I'm telling you. And uh, I just look at the... I look at the the, how God has taken their life and, and how God has used them in such a tremendous way. And it's an encouragement to me and a, and a blessing. Aren't you glad for the grace of God? Amen. He'll, he'll, you know what he'll do? He'll take you wherever you are. But he won't leave you there. Amen. He won't leave you there. And that's their testimony to me. And, and I'm always encouraged by them. I sure love them. Won't you open your Bible, if you will, through the book of Matthew in chapter number 6, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6 is the center section of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. If you go to the, if you go to the Holy Land with a lot of different groups, they're going, to, they're going to set you on a hillside and then a guy's going to stand down here and he's going to talk with you and they're going to tell you about the, the, uh, the uh, Colosseum type effect as the voice carries. And, and they give you a picture of Jesus teaching this great multitude of people. That's not what happened at all. If you, if you look at Matthew chapter 5, in fact, let's just do that real quick. It'll be a good Bible lesson for you. And seeing the multitudes, what did he do? He went up into a mountain... Uh, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, 
and he opened his mouth and taught them, say. So he's not teaching the multitudes kingdom principles. That would be ludicrous. You want to talk about a confused mess. I taught this in the Holy Land, and the guide that was with me said, I have never seen that in my entire life. Because basically they go through their program and they're taught, you know, just the bigger picture of the, of, of, of the sounding board and how the voice carries and they do all that. Jesus left the multitude, took his disciples up, he espoused unto them the Sermon on the Mount, and then they went back down to the multitude. And so in chapter 6 we find ourselves in the middle of this Sermon on the Mount. Would you stand to your feet? We'll begin reading in verse number 1 of Matthew chapter number 6. Jesus says to them, Take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them, otherwise ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Now alms is giving. Okay, it's, it's, it's giving. It's a financial statement here. Therefore, verse 2, When thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory of men, verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy father which seeth thee in secret himself shall reward thee openly. Now let me just stop and say this. You have to make up your mind and decide where you want your reward. I mean, you're going to cash in now? Enjoy it. I mean, just, I mean get, get, get everything you can, because that's all you're getting. Okay. So we have to make up our mind whether we're living for the now or living for the then. Whether we're temporal, temporal or eternal. Whether we're doing what we're doing for the applause of men, or whether we're doing what we're doing for the glory of God. So the, the hypocrites, they, they would blow a trumpet so that everybody... What? They would know immediately he's fixing to give. And he would, he would, he would uh, take that money and put it in and everybody would just say, Oh my word, what a generous, what a wonderful giver. Years ago in the church I pastored, I had an old guy that would take up the offering. And every time he'd take up the offering, he'd stand right in front of me and he would take $2 bills. He would fan them apart because he didn't want me to think I was just, he was just giving $1. He would fan them apart. And by the way, by the way, even if it's a widow's mat, God receives it. Okay, That's not the issue that it was $2. So the issue was he wanted everybody to see it. So he would fan that baby out and the $2 would go like this and he would look me in the face and drop it in the plate. One day he drew something out of his wallet he didn't know and he fanned it out and it was a 10 and a 1 and I thought he was going to pass out. He wasn't planning on giving that much. So there's a lesson for us there. Now he's going to change the subject in verse 5 from giving to praying. And so in verse number 5 he says, And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. And so there's the same principle. Give in a secretive manner, not to gain applause and praise of men, and your Father which seeth in secret will do what? He'll reward you openly. When you pray, go somewhere, get in a closet, 
You're not praying, you know, to, to be heard of men or to make some flowery speech before God. You're praying, you're praying in the presence of God in the secret place so that God who sees in secret will reward you openly. And, and he elaborates on prayer there and, and gives them the model prayer in verse 8 down uh, through 15 he discusses prayer. Then he changes the subject in verse 16 and he begins to talk about fasting. Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thy head and wash thy face that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret. And here's the principle again. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Let's pray. Father, help us tonight. Open our hearts, our minds. I pray that you would do in us, dear God, the work that we need done. Please, Lord Jesus, be thorough. May the Holy Spirit, may the Holy Spirit convict and, and change us and move us and help us. And we'll thank you for what you do. In the name of Christ, our Savior, we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. In 1976, there was a man by the name of David Berkowitz who was a poster worker in New York City. He was 23 years old and he attended a Baptist church. He was well thought of by his fellow workers in the post office. He was always on time. Uh, he was a very conscientious worker. It was noted by those that worked close to him that he was a quiet man. Did not have a lot to say. They could not recall even one instance where there was ever a conflict between him and um, uh, someone that worked with him. Uh, his supervisors, those that worked over him in the post office, just talked about what an amiable guy and how that he always got along. Never complained. He never filed a complaint. He never griped about conditions. He came in quietly, clocked in, did his work, clocked out, and went home. But something happened when David Berkowitz left work that no one at the post office or no one in the apartments where he lived knew anything about. He went into that apartment and would shut the door and then for hours he would fill his mind with all sorts of sleazy and pornographic paraphernalia and then for hours he would ruminate over the filth and the garbage that he had set before himself. When that was over, he would open a drawer in his bedroom there and remove from it a 44 Magnum handgun. He would slip out of his apartment at night into the darkness, and he would, he would slip around into the park areas of New York City and stalk people until at the very right, very right moment in his own mind, he would, with cold and calculated calmness, pull the trigger on that 44 Magnum handgun and literally blow them into eternity. When his deed was done, he would mail notes about his murders. He would send them to radio stations and television stations, mocking the police for not being able to find him. And rather than signing it David Berkowitz, he would sign it the Son of Sam. 
the son of Sam. And from July of 1976 until August of 1977, he literally held metropolitan New York City in the palm of his hand in an absolute state of terror. When he was finally caught, when he was finally caught, I remember them interviewing his fellow workers at the post office and, and, and they were stunned. They could not possibly imagine that the person that, that worked right in the bin next to them or that they greeted as he came in and out or sat in the lunchroom, they could not possibly imagine that this man, this quiet man, this unassuming man, this never complaining man was a serial murderer who had killed people in the streets of their city and locked them in their homes at night in terror for fear that something might happen to them. The lady that was his landlord was in tears. Couldn't believe that, that the guy who was never laid on his rent, that never complained, that always was there to say a kind word or to help a neighbor that needed something done around the apartment complex, always so willing, always so kind, always so cordial. And now all of a sudden she's hearing that this man this man is the serial killer that has terrified and froze the city in fear. You see, to the public, in his public life, he was David Berkowitz. But in his secret life, he was the son of Sam. Now, you and I come from different walks of life. We come from different parts of the country. I'm a southern boy born on the coastal side of Georgia. There are people here that, that, that are native to this area than others that came in from various places around our nation. My dad was a railroad worker. You worked for 41 years. Your, your dad was, worked in another industry or another business, and you may have farming in your background and whatever. We come from, we come from different walks of life, and we have different likes and, 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 and different personalities and and, and there, there's, a, there's a big mixture of people like every New Testament church is. But the one thing that you and I have in common is that every single person in this room has two lives. We have a public life and we have a secret life. We have an open life that's accessible to everyone to view. And then we have a secret life that only we and God can see. The public life is you that everyone sees. It's what the people, listen, think you are. The secret life is the you that only you and God sees, and it's what God knows you are. Spurgeon said this, and I think I quoted it the other night, beware of no man more than yourself because we carry our worst enemies within us. And so the reality of the matter is the person that we must be most concerned about is the man or the lady in the mirror. And, and I think that we should all be reminded that it's very easy for us uh, to polish the outer image while neglecting the inner man. And I'd like to remind us in, in our circle of conservative Christianity that there's far more to the Christian life than the outer appearance. We've got to realize that just because we have the right clothes and the right standards and just because we, 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 we do all the things outwardly, 
that people can look at and identify us as conservative Christians, that doesn't make us right with our God. In fact, Jesus said to a group of people that, that looked really good, and, 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 and you know, if, if you looked at them from a distance, you would just simply say they are, they are the epitome of, of what God followers should be. And yet Jesus said to them, you've got a problem. It's not an outward problem because on the outside, you're, you, you, are, you are whited sepulchers. You've you, you got a good coat of whitewash on you. But the closer I get to you, the worse you smell. You're full of dead men's bones. I look at you and I say, good. I smell you and I say, bad. From a distance, you look great. As I get up closer on you, I realize that there's something inside of you that is decaying. And, and, and so the, the, the realization for you and I is simply this. We need, we need to realize that it's, that it's not all how we act and the things that we do. You know, what, you know what Jesus taught them? He taught them, listen, the beatitudes. It's not the do attitudes. You know what we are? We're not human doings. We're human beings. So there's more to life than doing. It's a be attitude. This is what we are to be. We don't, we don't do peacemaking. We, we be a peacemaker. And because that's what we are, then naturally it comes out in our actions and what we do. But we have to begin on the inside. Now, here's what I want to say to you tonight. If we're going to have revival, true revival, we have to have it in our secret life. We have to get to the place to where on the inside, it's not just coming down and adhering to a set of standards and a group of requirements and signing our name on a, on a, 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 a page of requirements on how we're to walk and talk and act and, 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 and carry ourselves. It's where Jesus does a work on the inside of us that actually makes us desire to be what he wants us to be. The Father which seeth in secret. What are you? Who are you? When no one is near, who are you when no one is watching? Who are you when the lights are out? Who are you when the sun sets? Thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward you openly. Did you know this? Did you know that the key to public blessing is secret consecration? Thy Father which sees you in secret will reward you openly. I'm just going to tell you, we spend so much of our time trying to prop ourselves up with a public image and we wonder why we're empty. The reality of the matter is we ought to, we ought to leave all that alone and just, just be what God wants us to be in secret. And God said, if you'll do that, I'll do this. If you'll do that, I will reward you openly and publicly. I'll take care of all that. Don't worry about your image. Don't worry about what people think about you. Worry about what I know of you. One of the mottos of my life is this. I have nothing to prove. I have someone to please. I'm telling you, if we spend our life not trying to prove ourselves to other people, but we try to please our, our Heavenly Father, then it's all going to be good. The key to public blessing is secret consecration and obedience. And that's, the, by the way, we talked about marriage last night. That's the key to your marriage. Marriages fall Marriages fall not because of public spats. Marriages fall because of secret infidelities. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's the key, that's the key to our ministry. If I, if I am something else in the pulpit than what I am at home and in my secret life, the reality of the matter, I, my life is a facade. It, listen, it's, it's the key to our church life. I've had people come to church and sit and say, Amen, preacher, when they walk out the door, shake my hand and say, Glory to God. And by the time the next Sunday rolls around, they're gone. Nowhere to be found. Why? Because their secret life was a sham. Our personal life, our church life, our family life, it all hinges on that. I think sometimes we've got it so backwards. We go about promoting and practicing and and polishing the, 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 the public me, the image me, the church me, the visible me. You know what Paul said? You know what Paul prayed to the church at, at Ephesus? He said this, listen, in Ephesians 3.16, that he would grant you according to his riches and glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. Paul didn't say, you know what, I, I, I think, look, I, I'd like to talk with you about, you know, get some things in order on how you're looking. You know what Paul said? I'm praying that God will work on your inside. Because if he works on the inside, the outside's going to follow. And so Paul's beginning at the right place. And, 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 and so then we find the indictment, you see, of, of uh, those hypocrites that were whited sepulchers. I went to... Quebec, Canada, and preached one time. The pastor pulled up to a parking place and parked his car, and he said, follow me. And we, there's a little doorway on the side of a building on a busy street. We went through that doorway, went downstairs, and all of a sudden there was an entire other world down there. There were 16 miles, 16 miles of tunnels underneath Quebec one section was a shopping section. The other section was, was restaurants where you could eat. And, and, and we went down, and, and, and he said to me, people that live here never have to come above ground. They can go to their bank. They can go to their college. They can, they can, they can go uh, buy their necessities in the stores. They can eat at restaurants. They can shop for clothes. And they never have to see sunlight when the weather's bad because their life can, their life can function fine underground. And I think that sometimes there are things that aren't visible to the eye. But underneath the manhole cover of our life, there's something going on down deep inside of there. And if that's the case, dear friends, and it's not, if we're not in our secret life what God would have us be, sooner or later we're going to be in trouble. Psalm 44 verse 21, Shall not God search this out? For he knoweth the secrets of the heart. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 5, For I know the things that come into your mind, every one of them. Thy Father, which seeth in secret. Did you know this? Did you know that God knows your thought life? God knows the things that you think. He sees the part of you that no one else can see. Our secret life is an open book to God. And if that's not a sobering thought to you, you're missing you're missing the weightiness and the heaviness of, of what that verse means. He sees you where no one else sees you. He knows the you that, that even your mate does not know. He knows you. It's an alarming thought. It was in the backfields where no one saw and no crowds cheered that David slew a lion and a bear. 
And it was in that secret time where nobody else watched that the faith was birthed for him to go into the visible valley of Elah and call a giant out and kill the giant while all the crowd sang and people wrote songs about his name. So it's in the secret life that the public blessing is, 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 is founded upon truth. But wait a minute. Isn't it interesting that David embraced Bathsheba in the quietness of his secret life and it brought his kingdom publicly to its knees? I'm just telling you, public blessing or, or public curse is born in the secret place of our lives. If we're victorious in our secret life, we'll have the blessings of God if our secret life is faulty. I don't care how you act. I don't care what kind of clothes you wear. I don't care the language you use. It doesn't matter. We can praise the Lord and we can say glory to God. We can say we love you, preacher. We can do all the right things. We can memorize the lingo. We can go through the mannerisms. But if our secret life is faulty, sooner or later it's going to lead to tragic results. Go with me to Psalm 19. Let me show you something. Psalm 19. Would you turn there? Psalm 19, verse 12. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from what? All right, what is a secret fault? A secret fault, now listen to me carefully. A secret fault is something that no one else knows. Are you with me? Psalm 19, verse 12. All right, here we go. A secret fault is something that no one else can see. But wait a minute. A secret fault may be something that you don't even know. It, it, it could be, it could be that, that there's something inside of us, an attitude or a motive that we're not even aware of, and it's, it's secret not just to people, but it could be a secret to us. That's why it's very important that we go before God and pray what David prayed, just say, Lord, listen, would you help me? Would you, would you help me? Would you, would you cleanse me even from the things I'm not even aware are there? Would you show them to me? Would you point them out? Have you ever got on your knees and just got along with God and quite be still and know that I am God and got on your face before God and say, God, would you show me in my heart Whatever it might be, you see, that is contrary to you and to the holiness that you require of my life, show me. Put the spotlight of your word on my heart. Let the Spirit of God search me, O God, and know me. And see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God, show me what's in me. Secret faults. Verse 13. Keep back thy servant also from, now here's the next thing presumptuous sins. You know what a presumptuous sin is? A presumptuous sin is something that I arrogantly think that I can handle. All right, now watch me. There's a secret sin here that I may be hiding or that may be hiding from me. I'm not really sure. You know, God just show me. Show me. A presumptuous sin is something that I know full well is sin, but I think that I've got it. I think that I can handle it. Did you know what? You can't handle sin, but sin can handle you. And, and it, 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 it will make you pay more than you intended to pay. It will take you further than you intended to go. It will keep you longer than you intended to stay. 
You're never in control of sin. Amen. Never happens that way. You think that you've got it and all of a sudden it's got you. It's like having a rattlesnake by the tail and all of a sudden it turns and latches its fangs in on you and you're in deep trouble. So David said, Lord, would you, would you cleanse me from secret faults? Lord, Lord, would you keep me back from presumptuous sins that I'm so arrogant that I think that I can handle? Watch. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright and I shall be innocent from what? The great transgression. Now listen to me. Watch this. Secret sins, sins that we're trying to cover and hide, lead to presumptuous sins because we think we can handle those. When God points them out to us and we say, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going, I'm not going to get that one right, that's, that's presumption. That's me thinking I can do it on my own. That's me thinking Dean is enough. Now watch. Those two coupled together, they lead to the great transgression. What is that? That's, that's the shipwreck. That's the thing out there that you can't see right now. That's what the late night in front of the computer and the going places where you should never go. That's where the glance at the phone and hoping no one sees and you're traveling places that, that, that you never would have traveled on your own, but now you don't have to travel. It comes to you. You see? This is what happens. What you can't see is the great transgression. You can't see a broken home. You can't see a weeping, weeping uh, 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 heart. You can't, you can't see children that, that are shattered because their home is disintegrated around them. I, listen, the first drink, just, just a little bit. Just the, I'm just going to have a little bit of fun tonight. You can't see the life of an alcoholic. I'm just telling you, listen to me. The, the, the sins that we hide in secret and the things that we are so presumptuous that we think we can handle, they lead to the great transgression. Something that we cannot, we cannot handle. Greater, the great transgression is greater both in act and in consequences. And if you go out and you don't click it, you get a ticket, right? But if you murder somebody, you're not getting a ticket. You're going to the big house, okay? You're in trouble. So it's greater both in its act and, and in its consequences. And what we don't realize, we dilly-dally with secret sins and presumptuous sins, but we don't realize where that leads us. It leads us to the greater transgression. After doing on his rooftop what many people do on their computers, it led David into adultery, and his entire world imploded around him. The rest of David's life, he carried the scars and bore the brokenness of his secret sin. I want to just tell you, if you think back, you know, I, when I was a kid, one of the guys that was the, one of the great running backs for USC was O.J. Simpson. And then he ran for the Bills, and we know the 2,000-yard gains, gains and the things that he had. And I'll never forget the time when somebody said he'd committed a grievous sin. And I, I, said, I said to people around me, I don't, not the juice. I don't believe that. But here's the reality. Listen, O.J.'s... O.J.'s public life wasn't on trial. It was his secret life. And all of a sudden they play a tape on TV and you hear, you hear his wife screaming for mercy and you find out that the guy that we thought was publicly was not in the shadows. I wonder 
I wonder how many brothers and sisters in Christ we have to weep over before we wake up and realize how important our secret life is. Years ago, I was preaching a revival in Albany, Georgia. Albany State University is there. It's a traditional black college. And then there is the Flint River. And uh, great tradition at Albany State. The Flint River is a beautiful place. The flood stage of the Flint River, it crests out at 18 feet. When it's at 18 feet, it's over its banks. Things happened and the rains came back in Georgia during those days. And I'll never forget that the Flint River crested out at 42 feet. I went to Albany State University and right above the second story window of that, of that historic college, there was a water line above the second story window. The pastor drove me around and I looked down at a little dip in the earth, this little gully there, and there was a Kmart, if you remember those stores, there was a Kmart down in there and, and, and you couldn't see the door, all you could see was a square roof of the building and, and ducks and seagulls were sharing time on the roof. It was unbelievable. He drove me down a street and as, as we got down the street, he said, we can't go any further, he pulled to the side and there was... There was a, a blockade set up there, and we got out and began to walk. And as I'm walking down the street there, I'm wondering, what is that I'm seeing? As I got closer, I realized that I was looking at the peak of a roof. We got closer, and, and I looked around, and there's this gaping hole about the size of this auditorium. And here is this house sort of cocked sideways. I can see the peak of the roof, and it's tilted over, and the back of it's leaning down into this sinkhole. Next to it was another house, and that house had settled down. There was an F-150 pickup truck still in the driveway. In the backyard, there was a swing set still standing up, swings just, just moving slowly in the breeze. And I looked down there at that house, and I thought to myself, you'd never know anything was wrong. And he told me this. He said, what happened was that when the floodwaters began to rise, what they did not realize was that beneath these houses there was a limestone fault. The pressure was so great that caskets began to pop out of the ground and float down the river. They had to get crews of people with, with, uh, with boats to go down and nets and, and tie those together and, and tie them to a tree until after the floods went down they could record wherever they went and put them back and rebury them where they belonged. And so the pressure of that water as it settled into that neighborhood was so great. And as you looked at those houses, everything looked fine. They just looked like every other house on the block. But beneath them, unseen by the eye, was a limestone fault that when that pressure of that water be began to penetrate the earth, that limestone fault began to cave in and those houses disappeared from view. I'm going to tell you something, dear friend. There's so many times in my ministry. There's so many times in my ministry where I have seen people. I've had people sit in my services. I remember one Sunday night I preached on temptation. Just as a young preacher, I was pouring my heart out about how to avoid temptation and lead us not into temptation. 
and the dangers of temptation. And before that week was out, there was a man in my church that never came to my church again because of a grievous sin that he committed against someone else. And I want to tell you, it just blew things wide open in his family. Lost his family, lost his friends, lost his church. Why? Because underneath him, unbeknownst by anyone in that church, there was a limestone fault. There was a character flaw in his secret life. He wasn't where he should be. There was no bedrock. The law said, I'm concerned with the public life. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus said, I'm concerned with the secret life. Don't even look on a woman to lust after her in your heart. The law said, I'm concerned with the public life. Thou shalt not kill. Jesus said, I'm concerned with the secret life. Don't even hate your brother in your heart. Paul's instruction to the church at Ephesus and to the elders there was, take heed unto yourselves and to all the flock. You know what Paul's saying? Listen to me. You can feel your position, but you better watch out. You better make sure you're right. You can't help anybody else if you're not right. In Timothy, he writes to Timothy, he said, take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Number one, make sure you're right. Secretly, morally, your integrity. And then make sure your doctrine's correct. I've known guys that have gone around waving the doctrine. Well, I'm a Baptist, bless God. Well, I am too. I believe the King James Bible. Well, I do too. Well, I believe in living separate from the world. Well, I do too. And then all of a sudden they're gone. Do you know why? Because they majored on doctrine. They put doctrine first. And the reality of the matter is your doctrine isn't worth a dime if your heart's not right with God. Your life's not pure and clean according to the Word of God. We can become prideful over being right rather than humble over getting our hearts right with God. We can be, we can be a, a doctrinally and morally sound and inwardly corrupt. All it is is, all it is, is empty head knowledge. And boy, it's happening in the ministry at an alarming rate, isn't it, preacher? Guys that I've prayed with, I wind up weeping over. I've gotten calls. I've gotten calls in hotel rooms while I was off preaching a revival somewhere, and somebody said, I hate to tell you this, but our dear brother has fallen, and I buried my face in the carpet and literally sobbed myself that night like, like, like I, I didn't know if I'd even mount behind the pulpit again simply because of the fact that my heart was shattered because somebody had a faulty secret life. Let me just tell you this, dear friend. Just because a man has a large house and drives a nice car and works a good job does not mean that he has a satisfied soul. And just because a man has a large ministry and faithful people and a lot of perks doesn't mean that he has a satisfied soul. I think that sometimes we confuse our work for God with our walk with God. I think that sometimes because we're doing a work, we, we substitute that for the walk. If you have a walk, you will do a work. But you can work, 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 work without a walk, 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 walk. It can all be just outward. We're content to know God secondhand. I remember as a young man going to fellowship meetings and with my pastor, and I remember walking with him just as a young guy in the ministry, and, 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 and we would sit at the table with, with Lee Robertson and, 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 and Tom Malone and men all around the country would see him, and, and they would say, Hey, Cecil, 
They would talk with him. And I, as I walked into a meeting with him, I realized that my pastor was known nationally. And I felt good for being with him. But you know something I learned? I learned, I learned that being with my pastor didn't give me any walk with God at all. That it's not good enough to know God secondhand. It's not just that my mother was a godly saint. Was it? It's not just that my pastor was a great preacher. No, 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 no. It comes down to me. I, I, I need to walk with God. We feel like sometimes that we read a book by somebody that walked with God, or we go to a conference somebody and rub show, uh, led by somebody and rub shoulders with somebody that walks with God. But what's desperately needed in our churches are people that know how to walk with God themselves. You can't ride your preacher's coattails. You can't ride uh, his wife's. Listen, you can't. You can't. You can't. You can't draw off. I know they're going to help you. I know they're going to teach you. But I'm just saying simply this. It's not enough that you say, I've got a godly pastor and my pastor's wife is a, is a woman of God. No, you, you, this church should be filled with men of God. You want to impact this community? Then let's don't play Pope. Where he comes up and everybody bows and they say, well, my preacher's okay. No, no, listen to me. Listen, the reality of the matter is you've got to have a walk with God yourself. And your, your, your home needs a man of God. Your children need a man of God. Go with me to Ezekiel, would you please? Chapter 8. Ezekiel chapter 8. Let me show you one other portion of Scripture and we'll tie a knot in this. Ezekiel chapter 8. God says to Ezekiel, chapter 8, verse number 7, watch this. And he brought me to the door of the court. And when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. And he said unto me, Son of man, dig now in the wall. And when I had digged in the wall, behold, a door. And he said unto me, Go in, and behold, the wicked abominations that they do here. So I went in and saw, and behold, every form of creeping things, an abominable beast, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed upon the wall round about. And there stood before me seventy men of the ancients of the house of Israel. And in the midst of them stood Jezaniah, the son of Shaphan, with every man his censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. Then said he unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the chambers of his imagery. For they say, the Lord seeth us not. The Lord hath forsaken the earth. I want to tell you, our secret life goes beyond what the preacher thinks of us. What the other church members think we are. How respected we are amongst our peers what we appear to be in the Sunday school pulpit or the bus route. It goes beyond all of that. It's what's going on in the chambers of our imagery. Now I want you to look at me and listen to me, and I'm going to wind this up, but listen to me. If it plugs into an outlet, unplug it. If you don't have the strength to get rid of things in your life that are filling the secret chambers of your imagery, behind the hole in the wall, behind the door, behind the hole in the wall. If 
you can't, if you can't handle things, get them out of your life. It's not worth it. Just get them out. Have the decency and the transparency before God to say, I can't and so I won't. Admit where you are and surrender it and get it right. They say that you could walk out tonight into that parking lot and look up into the sky and you could actually see the light of a solar star that burned out 20 years ago. But because of the distance, you still see the light. But in reality, the star is not really there. As far as its burning fervor is concerned, it burned out long after the light stopped reaching us. Didn't Jesus talk to the church of Sardis and say, Thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead? Boy, do we need a revival of honesty. Are we just living a name? Do we just have a reputation? Here's revival. Revival is when my secret life and my public life match up. When I really am what I appear to be. When I'm so concerned about my secret life that I forget about my public life, I just give my life to God. And you know what God does? God merges the two together because that's who I really am. The thing that has destroyed our independent, fundamental, Bible-believing, King James-toting Baptist churches is a lack of transparency and a lack of honesty. You don't have to sweep anything under the rug if there ain't nothing to sweep under the rug. We've got to get back to living right. Years ago, I heard the story of a football team that was playing its interstate rival. And to get to where they were going before the game, they had to cross mountains on their bus. And so they loaded their gear up, got their football team on, and they started up the mountains. Traveled up and peaked up to the top and then began to drive over the summit and make their way down to the other valley where they would play football. On the way down, something happened. They weren't sure what happened, but somehow the brakes gave out on the bus. The bus began to pick up speed, and, and it began to cream down the mountain. And the bus driver looked over at the coach who was sitting to his right. He said, Coach, I don't know what's wrong, but we don't have any brakes. And he's pumping the brakes as hard as he could. He tries the emergency brake, and he does everything he can. But the bus is picking up steam, and it's going downhill. And the coach realizes that by the look on his face that there's Nothing but panic as he wrestles that bus through the curves and, and, and you can feel, the, you can feel the, the force, the G-force as it begins to lean one way or another way and, 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 and the fear that had just uh, overtaken him. And so the coach looks back at the players and he said, put your, head, put your heads down between your knees and hold on to the seat in front of you. We have no brakes. And the coach said after he had said that just a moment later, something flew past his head and hit the windshield and fell on the floorboard. He glanced down at it, not even recording what it was in his mind. They fought their way down and came into a little gully there on the pass, and the bus sort of rocked up one side, and 
then began to slide backwards, and the bus driver was able to ease it up on the inside of the mountain and scrape it literally to a stop. Coach said that he could hear young men weeping, sobbing, the quiet sobs of big guys that were fixing to go to battle. Some of them were so sick to their stomach from the, from the rush of adrenaline that they were leaning their heads out the window, literally throwing up because they were sick to their stomach. And he said, at that moment, I looked down at the bus floor by the window and saw a vulgar pornographic magazine that had flown past my head, hit the window, and then hit the floor. I scooped it up and rolled it up quickly. And he said, I got up on the bus and walked down one side and I said, son, is this yours? It's not mine, coach. Is this yours? No, sir, coach. All the way down one side and about a quarter of the way up the other side, I asked, is this yours? No, is this? No, no. Finally, I came to a young man that was sitting next to the window. And I said, is this your magazine? His eyes welled with tears and his voice quivered and he said, yes, coach, it is. It is mine. And the coach said, you know the rules. You know you're not supposed to have this in your possession and you will pay the consequences. But I want you to tell me why you threw that magazine to the front of the bus. And he said, Coach, it was, in my, it was in my satchel here. It was in my gym bag. I thought we were going to die. And I, I, knew, I knew when we went over the side that I wouldn't have any time to control anything. And I knew, I knew when they came and found us and dug us out of the side of the mountain there, I knew they would find me. I knew they would find that bag, and I knew my mother would know it was mine. And when they, when they gave that bag to my mom, she'd open it up. And she see, would see what I had been carrying around in secret. And I didn't want her to find that on me. And so I threw it to the front of the bus. Now I'm going to ask you a question. If Jesus was coming tonight, what would you throw to the front of the bus? That's where revival, true, honest, life-changing revival begins is in the secret life. Let's bow our heads, would we?